Hello and welcome to the Digital Agenda Podcast. I'm your host, Louise Stokes, and in this new series, we will be exploring issues relating to technology in the modern world. We will hear from industry experts with recordings from this year's Digital Agenda Power and Responsibility Summit. The insightful and thought-provoking discussions covered such diverse topics as data bias, the AI revolution, and profit for purpose. Welcome to Episode 6, Technology and Society. Digital technology is affecting many aspects of our social lives. How do we mitigate the impact of social media on mental health, personal development, and behavior? How do we protect the vulnerable from scams, fraud, and identity theft? And how do we harness the opportunities technology creates to improve well-being, resilience, and personal responsibility? The final episode of the Digital Agenda podcast will delve into technology and society. We hear from Dr. Indra Joshi, Head of Digital Health and AI at NHSX, Claire Levins, Director of Public Affairs at Internet Matters, Barry Penny, Chief Data Officer at Lloyds Banking Group, and Umesh Panja, Design and Product Director at Mental Health and Wellbeing Company, 87%. The discussion is chaired by Digital Agenda's Rachel Neiman. Now over to the panel. some very quick fire introductions, just who you are, what you do and where you're from. Indra, let's start with you. Hi everyone, I'm Indra, a doctor by background but work currently at NHS X, joint unit between Department of Health and NHS England, the Central Commissioner. Hello, my name's Claire Levens. I'm the Policy Director at Internet Matters. We're a not-for-profit funded by business that helps parents and professionals keep their children safe online. Um, I'm a bit of a political nerd. Sorry if that gets a little dull. I chair the UK Council for Internet Safety uh, Working Group on Vulnerable Internet Users, so we might come and talk about that. Uh, And I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. I'm Barry. I work for Lloyds Banking Group. I'm the data person. Uh, I've always been a data person. I've not got much chat that isn't data. Uh, So uh, strap yourselves in. (laughs) Thank you, Barry. Um, I'm Umi, or Umesh. I'm Design and Product Director at 87%. Um, We're an employee benefit platform that helps employers support their employees in maintaining their mental health. My backgrounds, I've been working in social tech for the last five years. I run a couple of startups and I'm also a mentor at Bethel Green Ventures um, on their kind of investment portfolio as well. Excellent. So to get us into the discussion, I'm going to start by asking each of the panellists in turn um, a specific question. There will be an opportunity for questions from the audience at various points. So do start thinking about anything that you would like to ask the panel. Indra, I'm going to start with you. We've seen some amazing innovations in health tech recently. But despite these, we're still hearing a lot about negative impacts, particularly around social media and screen time and their effects on mental health. What is the NHS doing to address this? It's a delicate balance, isn't it? So if I put my clinical hat on and say, as a clinician, 
Um, I, I want to plug a really great book, actually, which will help anybody to deal with this. There's a great book called, and I had to write it down, Teen Mental Health in an Online World. And um, it's written by fantastic people. James Willard, who's a good colleague and friend, but also Victoria Betton. It's on Amazon. You can buy it. You can also download it in digital format. Wouldn't recommend it because we're not recommending digital, are we? Um, but it's a fine line. And, and they go into the depth of saying, you know, we try to put so many barriers and, and say online can be bad, but actually a lot of children and young people will actually see online communities as a good thing. And it's a dichotomy because at one end, we as government and, and some of you will hopefully cover some of the things that uh, white papers and green papers have come out with to say, you know, let's try and regulate this environment. And at the same time, we're trying to push people to go, oh, you know, there's great online self-help groups. So it's, it's a fine line and a fine balance. And actually what we should be doing is educating the workforce or those people, those dealing um, with people who are vulnerable and, and access social media in different ways to actually integrate it into their practice in a sensible way, mm. just as we do with anything else in practice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting that you particularly pick up on children. Um, because, uh, you know, we're very well aware that adoption of new technology carries with it risks as well as benefits. Um, and many of these particular concerns over screen time, mental health and technology relate to children. Um, Claire, how does Internet Matters support parents to help keep their children safe online? Thank you. So it's quite a tough ask, isn't it, to interrupt parents in the middle of their busy working lives or, or, or even for parents who aren't working and get them to focus on what their children and young people are doing online. And so we do it in a number of ways. We work, we're in industry collaboration, so all sorts of companies will support us. So Sky are currently running our ad on their B-roll, for example, um, or EE uh, text out uh, 10 million of their subscribers um, suggesting that they, they come and look at our resources. But fundamentally, we provide um, evidence-based insights for parents in a bite-sized way. Right. So if you want to um, understand the new game that your child may be obsessed with, then you can come and look at our website and you will find meaningful, helpful, insightful information really quickly that allows you to make a judgment call. I think that's critical because there is so much misinformation or conflicting right. information about what is good, what is right, what is best practice, um, that, uh, that, that that's extremely valuable. Barry, just um, shifting a little bit, but staying with uh, the theme of keeping people, people safe. Some people talk about data, your area. My favourite. Uh, your favourite, absolutely. <laughs> some people talk about data as the new oil. I know some people have a big issue with that analogy. A lot of people disagree with it. Um, uh, whatever you think about that particular analogy, data is clearly a highly prized commodity and a real source of power. So how is Lloyd's Banking Group using the data it has at its disposal for good rather than exploiting it? Yeah, it's a privilege to have the data. Uh, that's why I took the job. Uh, I believe a bank's role in society should be much more, as I, I think my bank does. I've never worked in a bank before, before this job. Uh, I took it because of how important I think the data is and the power and privilege mm. it gives you. Uh, one example is our consumer digital index. So we have 30 million customers, Halifax, Lloyds, Bank of Scotland, you know, Scottish Widows, we, the lot. And that is a quite representative sample of those in the UK that have a bank account yeah. or mortgage. Um, with that, we can understand 
how digital maturity works in the UK in a representative way without having to do funky sampling and filling in gaps in some places. If you combine that with some qualitative survey, mm -hmm. other sorts of research to fill those gaps, you can, you can start figuring out very quickly a group of people that we call digitally disadvantaged. You know, we, we quoted some figures earlier, I think it's 11.9 million uh, people in the UK who do not have what we would say is the base digital literacy. That means being able to communicate online, research the best deals, read documents, you know, that means you're paying more money, you're getting fines. We can use that data to inform policy. The Department for Education uh, are using, using that study. We're working with the Lord Mayor on an initiative called uh, Future.now. Yep. Launches tomorrow, Guildhall, uh, 8.45, be there. And be. That, that's about um, helping build that digital skill base. It's not about training the next generation of data scientists, which is very important because yep. I can't hire any. Yep. But what is important is being able to use email, being able to receive communications yeah. from your doctor. Use Babylon. You know, and we just, I'm glad it was covered earlier, but that is the power of the data for me. It's not a, a cart before horse argument of going straight after the AI and machine learning, which I'd love to do because I love that. I'd love to be in a dark room doing coding again, but it's actually using the data to understand people, yeah, you know, and not building in, trying not to build in the biases up front, and, mm. and using the fact we've got representative start sample to start from the right base. Absolutely, yeah. and this has been a theme throughout the day, and you know, couldn't agree more. And in fact, we're going to come on uh, and talk a little bit more about issues around diversity um, and inclusion. But um, I just want to bring in another angle now with Ume. Um, we made debates around things like the gig economy and other social pressures are starting to shine a light on well-being in the workplace. We've heard a lot about issues with uh, alleged issues with warehouse, Amazon warehouses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. According to the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, male workers on construction sites, for example, are three times more likely to commit suicide than the average UK male. Your organisation, 87%, has created an app to improve well-being in the workplace. How does it work and what can we learn from it? Sure, we, we like to liken it to it's more of a kind of a, a platform. The first manifestation of it is an app. There's issues around an app when it kind of sits on the home screen with all the other apps mm. that may, may um, cause, for example, social media. So the ambition is to how do we get it out into your everyday life? Yep. But at the moment we're starting uh, as, a, as, as an app. Um, what we do is we work with organizations, it's, it's an employee benefit, mm -hmm. um, and we help um, their, their employees measure, get a measurement on their mental well-being. Because if, if it can't be seen, we can't kind of address it. But what we don't do Catherine. is we don't push that back to HR. Right? That does not go back to HR, that comes to us. We strip it of all PII, mm -hmm. um, and then we give back to the organization a, 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 a health score, if you like, of their organizations, where their strengths and their challenges are. However, for the user, we give a tailored program around the areas of strengths and weaknesses that they need to kind of support. And so that's like a handcrafted, if you like, programs that kind of go out to that. Then we have an extension of um, services and providers that we can push out to because um, we can't do everything. We don't propose to do everything because we know there's specialists who do menopause, there's specialists in mindfulness, there's specialists in, in all other, uh, other areas that 
you know, not one organization can do it all and work yep. well. So it's kind of how do we build that network and that partnership out to support, give the employee further support out the back of that. Fascinating and really, really important. Let's stay with well-being and health for a moment because I think this is a really big issue and it's been talked about a bit earlier. Um, so again, Indra, coming back to you, NHS is investing, as we know, heavily in AI and in health tech. Uh, and we've seen some really great examples of groundbreaking innovation. Some of them were talked about earlier today, more fields and DeepMind and various other examples. Where do you think, from your perspective, and given your responsibilities, uh, can digital health deliver the greatest benefits for the UK? Um, so I would split it up into two things. There's digital health, so health in a digital way, and there's digitising a system. So you can talk about operational, yeah. we talk about EHRs, electronic health records, we talk about the plumbing and the pipe work. Now it's a given that we need to do the latter. That has to happen. And for that to happen, it needs investment, of which we have invested significantly. And the slightly trickier one, or the one that people don't find that interesting, is the digital health. So how do you actually um, give tools, innovation, products, devices, whatever you want that happen to be delivered in a digital way? Mm. And then thinking slightly outside the box. Uh, so they're not necessarily a device or a tool that is immediately for the end user, the patient or the clinician, but in a wider way. And some of the things I think that we're seeing that are in development that are re really cool and fun, um, you wouldn't have been able to do sort of 20 years ago. So for example, being able to do a roadside scan. Uh, if any of you have ever been involved in a road traffic accident, you know, normally we used to do scoop and run. So you scoop you up, whack you in an ambulance, get you to the hospital. That was traditional saving lives. Um, but now you can do scans and you can do more tests at the, at the bedside or at the point of care. And point of care testing requires innovation or digital yeah. equipment and can fundamentally change outcomes because suddenly you can say, okay, that's what we call an internal bleed. In fact, I'll take them straight to theatre and I'll skip A and E altogether. Um, so it's thinking about it slightly differently. Mm. Mm. Other great things if we stick on with the urgent care is can you use machine learning to program traffic light systems? So actually they're always green and they can go straight. Um, and so actually it helps the ambulance get there slightly quicker. And one of the things we're just seeing is when you're doing that, how do you actually ensure that the evidence base is right, that the evaluation yes. is okay, but also it's of an efficiency, both a clinical one and a cost to the system. So we are developing frameworks, lots of different partners in that space. Hmm. Yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right to draw that distinction between those two different uses um, of, of digital. I mean, moving from health much more to well-being, um, and I know that we've got Karen in the audience who's going to be talking a bit later. Uh, but Ume, as the designer of a, of a well-being platform, uh, is there a paradox in human people using inanimate devices to help reduce their social isolation? Yes. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of, I was kind of hinting at it earlier, which was uh, currently we, we, we're an app, mm -hmm. right? And we sit, we could be sitting right next to other platforms or other other services on the phone that you might that might be causing the source of anxiety or, or, or mm -hmm. other parts. Now we're very aware of that, but this is why we kind of call ourselves more of a platform because as technology starts to be embedded into our environment and our being, we'd liken ourselves to be able to follow that. So then we kind of come away from this glass rectangle 
and be able to provide you the services or the support you need in your day-to-day. -day. Mm. And that might be practical through, um, be it through other digital devices, but if it can be kind of integrated into your physical environment as well, that's kind of where we start to see kind of the real benefit of, mm. of it coming out. At the moment, we're quite primitive. Everything happens in this glass rectangle. But as we move out of that, I think it's gonna, we're going to be um, in a better place. Mm. Okay, sticking with the glass rectangle, Claire, given all of your experience of working with families, is simply limiting screen time, limiting the amount of time people spend in front of the glass rectangle. Is that the answer? No, I'm done. Um, <laughs> time is the wrong metric very often. Okay, so, um, and, and just to kind of illustrate that point, consider a, uh, a teenager in a rural location online, okay? And that person may well be uh, exploring their sexual identity and they may need... Uh, the support that you can get through online communities to do that. Most of us, I think, would say we wouldn't necessarily want to limit the time that that person has mm. to explore those issues in their life. Take the same young person in the same rural community who is looking at far-right propaganda or uh, ISIS propaganda. Do we want to limit that? Yes, of course we do. So time isn't the metric that we need to be focused on. And it makes great headlines. Uh, and, you know, uh, and, and politicians can, can sort of, you know, berate us all for, for not doing this well. But actually, the change we need to achieve in this instance is getting parents to get engaged with what their children and young people are actually doing online. So is it... Um, mindless scrolling through social media which we may not think is a good thing or is it exploring their passion for space travel or in the case of my son dinosaurs or you know or whatever it is um, and until we get parents engaged and confident enough to have those conversations meaningfully we're going to miss a trick yeah I have to say I totally agree with that. It's definitely what you're doing. In fact, uh, it's something that um, I have a sort of slightly running disagreement with my husband over, who's actually sitting in the audience today. Um, <laughs> if I am spending time on screen playing Scrabble or other mindless games, that's not a good thing. If he's spending it doing Duolingo and practicing his Italian, then it's absolutely fine. So absolutely, <laughs> it's all about what you're actually doing online. But look, I'm not here to, to mitigate your marital challenges, you know. I just don't know. Damn. Damn. It's all right. I think we're okay. Splendid. Um, I'd like to um, turn to the audience now and just see if anybody has any questions that they'd like to ask. And again, I'd like to just take a couple of questions, come back to the panel again. I've got plenty more things to discuss with the panel, but are there any questions here? So we've got one from Caroline. So digital health is something that worries me quite a lot because of the huge medical data gap that there is and the evidence actually that AIs are not necessarily accounting for that. And I'd just be really interested to hear Indra talk about that a bit, you know, what the NHS is doing about that, what the thoughts are, you know, for example, there was this AI that um, was announced in the Scotsman a couple of weeks ago, where it was meant to be predicting heart attacks five years early. Um, and then if you looked at the paper, it didn't mention sex differences at all. The data it was based on was drawn on male-dominated studies. And so there's just no real way of knowing if this AI is actually going to be able to predict heart attacks in women or not. And of course, there was that scandal a few weeks ago about Babylon Health, um, the Babylon Health app misdiagnosing um, a woman who should have potentially been told that she might be having a heart attack. Mm. So 
yes, there are great things potential to come from AI, but it's also something that's worrying. And I just wondered what the NHS is doing about that. Okay, sorry, gentleman in the front row. For Barry, really. So given the mass data set that Lloyd's has, could it be doing more to start thinking about things that are going wrong in society and understanding problems that it can see from the data sets rather than using it to sell products and services? So first of all, Indra on AI and data in health, and then Barry on using data to actually solve problems. Indra. Um, So there's two ways of answering that question. One is look at the fact versus the hype. Um, there's a lot of hype in AI. Uh, we did a study with Nurio, which is the National Institute of Health Research Innovation Observatory. Uh, and we looked at all the databases and studies out there. And actually, of all the companies who said they were doing AI, about 132 we found. Uh, and of those, only about sort of 50 had actual market authorization. So there's actually a very small number of companies who are actually doing AI. Um, And we also did a survey, uh, and when we asked people when they thought they might be market-ready to do AI solutions, a very small percentage said they'd be ready in a year, about sort of 20%. Most felt that they wouldn't be ready for five years. So AI is a brilliant word to get investors to invest in you. Uh, The reality is in health, uh, we're not quite there yet. Going back to your question on the diversity and the proportionality of data, I think there was a great study that was released a couple of weeks ago in The Lancet. I don't know if you saw it. Um, definitely uh, read it. It's by a good, good colleague, Alistair. I never remember his surname. His name is Alistair. And... <laughs> uh, um, uh, Actually, the quality of studies out there that that use data in health, I talk specifically about health, don't always have a good proportionality. So the quality of data isn't very good. And that's something that we are pushing hard on. So earlier this year, we wrote a code of conduct. And there are three principles. There are 10 principles altogether. Three principles cover specifically use of open standards, data, data quality, proportionality, bias and the explainability of the product that you're developing. And what we're now encouraging people to do as they start commissioning or developing these products is embedding those principles and those codes of practice within their procurement frameworks. So they actually challenge companies um, when when they go to deploy it in the live setting, of which, as I said earlier, there isn't that much to say what is the quality of your data. And sometimes bias is good. You know, like if your algorithm specifically works on children, you don't want it to be trained on adults. Great, but be open, be transparent about that bias. And then that helps whoever is deploying it to understand actually in this setting, this is where the effect will be. This is where the model will work. But it's a a journey. Thank you, Indra. Barry, so over to you. And should we be using or should the bank be using all that data at your disposal to solve real problems? Yeah. I think that was that was a slight variation on the question because uh, you took my answer. Uh, so your question is, could the bank could the bank be using its data to do more than banking? Yes, of course. <laughs> should we? Don't know. Uh, and, and this is a uh, represent my views, not necessarily the views of Lloyds Banking Group. But uh, it's a very, very very live debate, honestly. Uh, And and we started it because we talked about data ethics, but data ethics isn't really a thing. Uh, Ethics is a thing. So we started talking about what if you were gambling too much? What if I knew what too much was? But let's, let's assume that I said I knew. What would I do about it if I'm the bank? Stop you doing it? Uh, would I stop you doing it if you were rich and could afford it and poor and couldn't? Or if I thought you were 
mentally able to deal with losing or not? Is it Banks' role in society to do that? I'm not clever enough to know. Um, so we're talking about that very same thing. And, and if, we, if we did, if we do a thought experiment and say, we think you are gambling too much because we know you and we know what gambling is and we know what too much is, what if you eat too much fast food? Is it okay for you to eat too much fast? We know because we'll know where you're paying it. Is it all right for us to say that's too much, but actually your BMI is quite good or, or something, so that's okay? Or you're looking bad, Nick, so that's not okay. Is that our judgment? Um, if you've got a Virgin Active membership, but we know via the Google Maps API that you never pass a gym, should we say to you, you should cancel your membership, save yourself 100 quid a month? <laughs> I don't know. Is that bad? We're stopping you going to. So yeah, I, I don't. I'm not. Um, not being glib. I, 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 this is this is so live. We we could we could do all that stuff. I believe that uh, there's a lot of trust in the banks. Sometimes more so than uh, government institutions. Some uh, and other people. Uh, sometimes even more than the church. Uh, I was talking to the Church of England's digital team about this yesterday, and. Uh, you know, the, bank, the bank has your money because uh, the, the church is collecting data on stuff and we're wondering what they could do with it. And they were like, well, I don't know if people would trust us to do that. It might be the bloody church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, would I would love to do more. I would love the bank to do more with the data asset. But we, it's, of course, steeped in governance and, and what, we, what we should do. Um, and I think it needs more than data people discussing it as well because... I know everything we could do. Are you sitting on the fence on this one? Uh, no, no. My personal view is we should do more, but I don't know where I draw the line. I think smart alerts. I don't. I don't know if I'm past the point age-wise of finding it useful that when I tap my credit card on the tube, it tells me I've just spent the money on a tube. <laughs> like I, I don't get that. You kind of got that already. But I knew that, unless someone's nicked my card, yeah. and I'm like, they're on a the tube. Um, but I, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be able to have suggestions and nudges to help me. But then I wonder if the people that would activate those, the digitally savvy, are maybe not the ones that we're after in the first. We have this team, uh, Responsible Transformation, here today. Hello. And they uh, are behind the idea of using our data, not just for this index that informs policy, but also figuring out which areas are the most digitally disadvantaged, say, what skills could we build? We have to have physical people going into using our branch network, which are empty a lot of the time. So why don't we run lessons in how to use the internet? Banking is a great vehicle to teach people how to do online banking and stay safe against fraud. So yes, sorry if I misinterpreted your question down to the micro. That's kind of what shows you where my head's at at the moment. But the, the macro trends, yes. And in fact, data sharing, I think... Um, Appropriate data sharing has to increase more between big organisations uh, and the state. And mm. you know, we have half of the UK's population. I think we've got the second largest database outside the NHS in the medals. So, I am, um, yeah, absolutely. And we do do stuff and we should be doing more. We should be doing more, yeah. Mm. It's a hear. tricky question, though, isn't it? The could and the should. Mm. So, in health, we have a national data guardian who's now been given statutory rights mm -hmm. on the should. Um, and in theory, you have a data protection officer on the could. Um, and I think it, it's a conundrum, isn't it? And we quite often get stuck in the policy. The person who thinks you could sometimes has to make the decision of should. Um, and that is hard. Um, and in health, should you do things just because you can do things? Well, you know, we know, for example, uh, from a previous job uh, where I worked for a health insurer, um, the, the, the biggest indicator of um, 
heart attack and stroke in middle-aged men because most of the people that had that policy were massive, massive uh, bias data set, but we knew it at least, um, was financial stress. The, bi- the biggest uh, mm. variable wasn't BMI or previous claims. Mm. It was how many credit cards had they applied for in the last six months. Not even how many they had, mm. how many they'd applied for, because a burst of applying for credit cards suggests an, an impending doom. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is stressful. And is that an area that the bank would take any action over? I don't know. I doubt we would, because mm. where, where is... Where's our place? Yeah, 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 yeah. this yeah. conversation. But with a health insurer, it made sense. Um, and in the end, this health insurer, the, the CEO, who's not there anymore, he's not dead. He's got another job. He said that we should have uh, financial planning to everybody because we can't target. Let's not target people. But if we offer financial planning, there'll be less claims, right? Good for us, good for people not having heart attacks. Mm. So... That that is that was visionary. I thought back then, when like data science was still in a bubble and we were just doing logistic regressions and getting paid loads of money for it. For him him to think that that was a thing to do. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it goes back a little bit to, to, to one of the earlier panel panel that uh, Jacqueline was um, chairing, thinking about that should and could, and actually, do the business models support the should or even the could? And the fact, well, we got the knowledge uh, in my team. There's no that My team's. Uh, Diverse in some ways and incredibly undiverse in others, in that we're all massive data geeks. Um, we are. Um, we all look different, different ages and genders and things, but we're not got the legal perspective. Lawyers have been grappling with ethics, for example, for a while. We could do with that, and we're wedging into that right now. Interesting segue into diversity, which I do want to turn to uh, and talk about now, which has come up in practically every session we've talked about today. Um, so, Umesh, you're uh, a product designer. We've heard a lot so far about the importance of designing inclusively. That came up very much in our first session with Eva and Jess. What advice do you have for organisations who want to practice inclusive design? Sure. Um, from an inclusive design perspective, the, the, let me line out the clear benefits. I mean, having inclusively designed products means that you can sell your stuff to more people. Bottom line, right? Because it's not narrow. Mm. Um, having an inclusive and diverse approach means that you protect your organization from, for, from future endeavors. You're getting better ideas, you're, you're bringing in more people, and you're kind of designing things, again, that will reach more people. So there's like just basic, the two basic premises are like, well, actually, if you are a commercial business, for purpose, for profit business, Having those two things baked in are just going to be good for business and good for what you do. Mm. Then bringing that into your organization it is around um, kind of the, the way you shape the teams, um, good human-centered design pr- purposes, uh, practices, speaking to your customers, speaking to your beneficiaries day in, day out, but also having um, those representatives on your teams as well. So if you can bring those people into, yes, it's great doing user interviews and user research, but if you can start to bake some of them into your team or into a closer network, that's always great as well, because then your kind of product development cycles become a lot more quicker and you get a lot more validation and you re- you reduce a lot more risk mm-hmm. as well. So you take out some of the risk out, out of it. So it's kind of, those are kind of the benefits and why you should probably do it. The bottom line, I mean, is good. It's good for all, but it's also good for your pocket. Absolutely, right, yeah. Absolutely. so yeah. you can't kind of argue with that. Yeah. Um, Claire, I, I want to talk to you a little bit. So, 
a lot of, of, of what Umesh has just been saying depends on having the insight and knowledge um, of the people that you are trying to represent. Internet Matters published recently a, a brilliant report aimed at supporting vulnerable children. Mm. Um, now, vulnerable children are going to be a difficult cohort to have insight into, to track, to get data around. Do offline vulnerabilities help us to understand the online risks that these children face? Yes, exactly, they do. So um, the report that we commissioned was through um, an organisation called YouthWorks um, and Kingston University. And they were able to demonstrate that if you could identify the um, vulnerabilities that children are enduring offline, so they may be looked after children, they may um, have a physical or learning uh, disability, whatever vulnerability you can think of, these children were considered in this research. Uh, if you know what they are, you can predict the type of risky behaviour that they will engage in online. So, for example, if your child has a hearing impediment, they are significantly more likely to engage in over-sexualised behaviour online with all of the risks that that involves. If you are responsible for the care of a looked after children, a, a child who's being fostered, a child who's in a care home, rather than living um, with their parents, that child is far more likely to, to repeatedly look at pro-anorexia websites and self-harm websites. And for those of you that don't inhabit this crazy world, there are some very, very explicit sites out there that will tell you what to eat to have a pro-anorexia diet, how to kill yourself, graded by efficacy and duration of pain, right? So when we talk about online safety, it's not just social media that we need to be looking at. We can predict what risks these children and young people will be facing. Well, guess what? If we can predict, it cannot be beyond us to intervene before risk becomes harm. Our research basically said that if you uh, look at the rainbow of uh, professionals and adults that support vulnerable children or children with vulnerabilities more accurately, uh, they need to be able to intervene well. But to do that, they need to be confident, competent, have the right resources, have the right training to have meaningful interactions. Well, when you talk to the people that represent social workers or counsellors or SENCOs or teachers, they will tell you that they are using forms, paper-based forms that were created 15 years ago, right? So they don't have the means to capture the information that we need to get any kind of trend analysis or to have meaningful conversations. That's why we formed this working group with UKIS. And that's why we've got 30 odd different organisations who want to work with us. So it's a massive work in progress. The need is huge. If you listen to the Children's Commissioner for England alone, two million kids in this country, so vulnerable, the state has to intervene. Two million in England, right? Shocking. And so we have to go where the harm and the risk is most and it's hard. It's really hard, which is probably why no one's done it before. So I may well be the Muppet that put her hand up and said, we're going to try and make a difference here. Um, and if any of you work for organisations that want to come and help, please do come and talk to me. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being that person. Muppet. Um, was the well, <laughs> person is what I would say. Um, shocking statistics are really, really scary. Um, so moving a little bit away from purely vulnerable people um 
or vulnerable children. Indra, um, every day, hundreds and thousands of people get treated by the NHS. And as the NHS becomes increasingly reliant on new technologies, how are you ensuring that you are not leaving anyone behind, be that staff or be that patient? Yeah, I think... It, it goes back to to what I said earlier about digitising and then health. Um, and unlike banking or other sectors, we don't have the option to close something. Mm-hmm. You know, so we can't we can't put a GP practice online and then close that GP practice. Those doors will always remain open. And so, from a from an economic perspective, there will be a period of time of what we call double running costs. Mm whilst we try and figure out the cost efficiencies of that digital product or that digital therapeutic or solution, whilst we still keep the physical doors open. Um, And that is a challenge, you know, it's not a, it's a, well, it appears to be a bottomless bucket, the NHS, but it does have a finite tap that turns off. Um, And so this is, this is a a challenge. And also the other challenge is, I mean, you talked about, you know, there's a large community, but we forget that the average reading age in the UK is sort of between seven and 10 years mm-hmm. old. You know, I remember when I worked in an A&E, I would explain something, what I thought was pretty easy to understand. And then they'd come back again, maybe three times in the same week, the same people, because they just didn't understand what I was saying. Mm. And all I was saying was, you know, take one tablet three times a day for five days. And that can be quite difficult. Yeah. And so one of the things we have done is work with the Good Things Foundation around creating digital champions, but also communities where you might not have, I don't even have a device on me, but if anybody's got a phone, whack it in the air, you know, to create a, a community where you can go and access a digital product, be mm. it a device, a tablet, what did you call it? The glass rectangle, mm. um, or, or around a library to say, okay, here is how you can actually access that information or service yeah. or whatever it might be in a digital way. So I think it's about not not leaving people behind. Um, and we're not alone in the UK. So whilst we're really lucky, we have the NHS, which has a very fundamental constitution. Um, the WHO and the UN principles have also taken those on of, you know, mm. no, no one should be left behind. Yeah, um, but, uh, you know, it is still a reality, mm. as we heard earlier today, and as um, Barry also mentioned from the Consumer Digital Index, that um, 20% of the UK adult population still don't have what are considered the basic or essential digital skills. So of those, there are going to be some people who are working at some level within the NHS, and many of those will be inevitably patients. So it's still a, uh, an ongoing um, an, an ongoing uh, issue. So Barry, turning to you, um, and again, sticking with that point about diversity uh, and also inclusive design, your you have the uh, half 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 of you half of the UK population adult population are your customers. It's correct, isn't it? Roughly, yeah, something like that. Um, quite a lot. Um, so, how do you ensure that your products uh, meet the needs of such a diverse group? Not successfully all the time mm-hmm. uh, at the moment because uh, it's very hard. Um, well, I would say. There's been some bold investments. Again, that, that's what's, what's attracted me. Uh, but at the, in my data world, uh, I look at the team. It's not diverse enough. Yeah. I haven't bought them all a copy of Caroline's book. I read it and said they should buy their own and the first 20 can expense it. Uh, 
it turns on some light bulbs about the design process. But mm. what, what we've got in the bank that I think was bold and a bit mad um, is we've hired another CDO, which is annoying. Um, <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a chief design officer. Um, ah. well, a guy called Dan Mikowski. Look him up. It's entertaining. Um, and he's not a banker. Uh, he's not a banker. He's a design guy. Google, Microsoft, mm-hmm. not banker. Uh, and it's the design process that we want to intervene in. And it's what my team need to learn more about. It's putting data at the beginning, stripping out the bias and making sure that we're asking the right questions. Mm-hmm. And I think that starts in the design because our data is as unbiased as you could possibly get really mm-hmm. for in, 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 in reality. So where does it go wrong? It goes wrong when people start doing stuff mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't even know it's gone wrong actually mm-hmm. because the people that... It's, it's all right, isn't it? Because the people that are in the group have tested it. But what about the design? So I think it's more about design than data. And we've got this um, relationship now where he's obsessed with data. I'm obsessed with design. We're trying to swap. And there's a clash of cultures going on between the teams because uh, uh, a lot of the stereotypical uh, data stereotypes are fairly true, really, uh, <laughs> like daylight and so on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bunch of bunch of people with flowery shirts are coming in. We're kind of kind of brown corduroys, um, but now we're all. It's great. It's a big old loving because des- design and data are all together, and it's. The, I think it's. The, I think it's, it's the really? design process, right? And we can't eliminate bias, and we are still learning. I can't recruit as diverse a team as I want to. Mm. I can't at the moment. I'm trying my best. Um, it's really, really difficult, whether that be the attractiveness of the team or the sector the, or the perceived lack of availability of talent or that the team just doesn't look like a good place. I don't know. I think we're doing all right, but we're definitely miles away. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to know a team that isn't uh, in this space. Yeah. So I'm, I don't want to say, oh, yeah, we're, we're fine because we're not. Well, it's good that you acknowledge that. And um, I'm sure you will keep trying. And as Catherine said, you can't fix something you can't see. At least you can see the problem. Um, and let's hope you manage to, to do yeah. that. I'd like to, um, I yeah, please. Ume. Interesting you say that. We found that um, over the course of what I've been designing digital products is that data gives you the what and kind of the kind of humans give you the why. And if you can bring those things together, you can do some awesome things. Because the data will just tell you, oh, okay, what's going on and all that. But you kind of don't know why. And when you get into dealing with humans and speaking to them, you start to understand why that data is doing that. You can kind of bring these two ones together. Even the concept of the data team. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm questioning. Exactly. Yeah. I'm questioning whether we need a data team, whether yeah. the ultimate mission well, is to obliterate it and get it out there so everyone's a data person. I mean, these should all be cross-cutting things. Yeah. It's like talking exactly. about the digital team as so well. All of these concepts should be cross-cutting throughout any organisation. I totally agree. I'm going to ask each of the panellists a final General question. So we've been talking about technology and society. In the next year, before we all come back again to this same venue for this same conference next year, what do you want to see happen? What is the biggest thing in your area that you want to see happen for social good as a result of technology? Indra. Oh, can I go at the end? Oh, good. (laughs) We'll start that way. Ume. I'm still thinking. There's so many things. I I think um, the answer in the context of mental health space is, at the moment, technology is part of the answer, but the stigma 
and the, the physical environment is the barrier. Right. So for, for, for even technology to even get, kind of get an edge in, there's all these other complex issues that have got to be dealt with. If you kind of look at the kind of the onion, if you're kind of familiar with the kind of service design principles, where you kind of got the beneficiary right at the bottom and then you start to undo the layers that kind of yeah. the person's got to transcend through or hear the message down, well, we're kind of even at this level. So there's, there's loads to do around kind of systems design effectively. Uh, very good uh, point. And, and how, you, how you deal with that. Then technology can find its way in. Very good point. I mean, systems design, critical. Uh, so tech is not always the answer. Tech can be the enabler for the answer, but it can't solve the problem Correct. always. Yep. Barry? I can't really talk too much about tech. I know that he's quite techy, but I, I'm not. Um, but from a data point of view, I, I'd like to see people focus more on answering simple questions with the right data mm -hmm. and questioning the data as opposed to getting a bit carried away and, and obsessing on explainable AI and stuff. Um, I still think there's a where did this data come from? Should I be using it? Then I'll ask how many customers used a cash machine last Wednesday, if I know what that base is. So uh, it's, it perhaps doesn't sound that ambitious, but I'd quite like this data culture. I define data culture as asking the right yeah. question and understanding if it's the right data. So I, I wanna breed this asking the right question thing everywhere yeah. in my bank, and then that enables us to answer some more societal macro type questions. So it's a sort of data literacy. Yeah, right, data literacy it. and yeah. tech enables that, of course. Yeah, yeah but yeah. agree that's very important. Claire? Um, so two things for me, really. Firstly, to understand that online safety is about behaviour, not technology. Um, and for that to happen, three things need to work in concert. We do need um, tech companies to step up and do more. We do need um, considered regulation to create a framework that works. And we have got to inspire and encourage parents and professionals to talk meaningfully to the young people in their care about what they're doing online. Because we know that children and young people from connected homes have far better outcomes across the board than children and young people from non-connected homes. So driving people off the internet is not the answer, but getting them to flourish online absolutely is. Great, thank you. Indra? Um, so I had a chance to think. You did, didn't I you? I had to think about it and also get inspired as we came along. Um, I would say if I had a dream, not, not in my current role, but as a, as a person sitting on this panel, is in a year's time, if we can lose a little bit of the arrogance, um, I see it a lot in health. There is an arrogance with a certain type of profession. There is an arrogance that we know better, you don't. There is an arrogance from data scientists that the model is always best. And you're like, mm, well, if you put it in real life, it doesn't actually work. Um, so wouldn't it be great if in a year's time, we could probably have more flowery and brown corduroys together uh, because Ooh. we left arrogance at the door. Well, there's a challenge. So team, remember that we want flowery shirts and brown corduroys next time. Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank our panel very much. Thanks to Rachel, Indra, Claire, Barry and Umesh for a dynamic discussion around technology in society. It's interesting to see just how pervasive technology has been over every aspect of our lives and encouraging to hear that its effects are not always negative. We thank you so much, listener, for tuning in to the very first Digital Agenda podcast series. We hope you found it stimulating and informative. The episodes are all available on our website, digitalagenda.io forward slash summit, and on all your favourite podcast platforms. We hope to see you at one of our events soon if we can, but do subscribe to digitalagenda.io to receive 
thought leadership uh, newsletters every week. Thank you for tuning in. Goodbye.